Now, our Holy Father, we've just affirmed that you are faithful. Indeed, you are to your people. Every morning, your mercies are forever new. Thank you for the way you have taken care of our needs above and beyond anything that we could even ask or think. And of all the nations of the world that you have planted our feet in, you've planted us in a nation that has been blessed beyond measure. You promised that a nation that would exalt you, you would exalt that nation. And thank you because of the fruit of Christians in years and decades past, you have blessed us. But we confess that as a people, as Americans, we are abandoning you in droves. So we know that repentance must begin with the household of faith. And so we ask today that you'd examine our own hearts. We pray that you would reignite in us a fire to take the great commission, that we would own it as individuals, that even this week you would give us at least one person that we could invite to church, maybe even someone that we could take through the plan of salvation. You told us to pray for open doors of opportunity, and that's what we're doing today. I pray in this next year, as I've been asking you, that every single one of our members would be able to influence at least one for the kingdom of Christ. Now, Father, I thank you tonight for our WANA ministry as it meets in Graniteville and as it meets here and then on Wednesday in Bluffton. I thank you for our laborers that the building into the lives of children is more important to them than the first half of the Super Bowl. Thank you for these children that will come tonight, some whose eternal destiny will be changed tonight because of a faithful teacher of God's word. And thank you for those that already know you and that they will grow deeper and have the spiritual steel that they need to stand strong in the midst of a godless generation. We submit ourselves to the authority of your word this morning. We ask that you would speak to our hearts by the Spirit who is the ultimate teacher whom you promised would help us to understand the scriptures. Help me to rightly divide the word of truth. Fill me and anoint me and use me, I pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Take God's word with you this morning. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you're new to the Bible, all the books in the Bible, they begin with the letter T. They're found together. They're found in the New Testament. They come right after Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Go everywhere preaching Christ. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And the T books go from long to short. Thessalonians, that word is longer than Timothy Longer than the word Titus, there's nine books for you in the New Testament. If you can find one, you can find any of nine, all right? First Timothy chapter 3. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, we've been working our way through the book of Revelation, and today we've pushed the pause button once again so that our campus in Grays that has just recently opened in Grays, South Carolina, can catch up with us so they don't walk into the middle of the bold judgments, which becomes critical to understanding the rest of what will follow in the Revelation. But this has given me as your pastor an opportunity to address some topics that I feel like need to be addressed. Now, if you've been here for any length of time, you know that there are two groups of people that are often mentioned, that of elder and that of deacon. And with hundreds of new Christians in the last few years, many have not heard what God's Word says on this subject. And I actually haven't addressed it in some seven years. 
So I hope to bring together a few passages to give us a biblical theology on the office of deacon. The word deacon means a servant. And so we are to be deacon-like. We are to be servant-like. Now, 1 Timothy, it's part of a trilogy of books that we have called for the last several hundred years the pastoral epistles. First and Second Timothy and Titus, and they really give us instruction on how God's church should operate and function. Sounds like you have found it. I want to begin reading in First Timothy chapter three and verse eight. Follow along in your Bibles. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested. Let them then let them be then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, if you remember our study on elders just a few weeks ago, where we looked at some of the qualifications that God says must be true in the life of an elder, it logically flows that he would move from the office of elder to the office of deacon. And I say deacons are servants because, again, that is literally what the word means. Do you remember on that occasion when Jesus was contrasting the way the world leads and the way God's people are to lead? And he said, it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. It's the word deacon, diaconus. He must be your deacon. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave, your doulos. Now, some of you are reading in your mother tongue, and you have a different language translation in front of you, and it doesn't say, as in our English Bible, that whoever would be great among you must be your servant, but it says whoever must be great among you must be your deacon. In fact, that's the way it's done in most languages of the world. But in the English Bible, we usually render it servant, to distinguish it from the office of deacon. Clearly, he's not talking here about the office of deacon. He's talking about all Christians in general, that he that would be great among you must be a deacon. He must be a servant. Now, with that said, I think it's helpful to recognize that because it will say a lot about other passages because sometimes people from the English Bible will try to build a case, for instance, with Phoebe in Romans 16 and verse 1, for female deacons. You remember that chapter? Paul commends Phoebe, a sister in Christ. He says, our sister Phoebe, who is a servant, a diaconon, it's the feminine form of deacon, in the church. Now, there's only one English translation that renders that deaconess. And people from this one verse have tried to create the office of deacon for women as well. But I'm going to show you this morning, you're thinking people, you can let Scripture interpret Scripture. There's a reason why for 1,900 years, no one believed that there was an office of deaconess. 
It's a theological stretch, and I think you will see why as we let Scripture interpret Scripture. Now, in noun form, the word diaconus simply means a servant. But again, it can be used in a technical way of the office. It's like the word apostle. Sometimes the word apostle is used very loosely of a sent person, a sent one. That's literally what the word means. But other times, it is used in a very concrete way, namely of someone who serves in the office of apostle. Now, there are no apostles today. To have been an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Christ. You had to be hand-selected by him. And if those two things were true, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, there would be certain signs, wonders, and miracles that would accompany your life. But there are two offices that go on, and that is the office of elder or deacon. And it is an office, two offices, that are for men. Now, you may be a woman here this morning and think, well, then why am I listening to this sermon? Well, number one, all Scripture is profitable. And number two, even if this were just for men, and it is, 97% of the men in the body of Christ will never serve in an official capacity in the office of deacon. Does that mean they are to ignore this passage? No, because leaders in the church are to be examples to the flock. They are to display a certain commitment and character lifestyle that we should all aspire to. Now, if you're using your note-taking outline, you can see there are three general truths that I hope to infuse into your biblical theology on this subject of a deacon. First, I want us to think about the creation of the office of deacon. Where did it begin? Remember when Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including overseers or elders or pastors, you might say. Again, it refers to the same office. We examined that a few weeks ago. And deacons. But unlike the office of elder that had its roots in the Old Testament, the office of deacon didn't exist in the Old Testament. It is a New Testament office. So we're going to talk about its creation. Then we'll talk about the credentials for the office. What are the necessary requirements for a man to be a deacon? And then we'll speak finally about the compensation that comes from the office. All right, you ready? Let's talk first about the creation of the office. Now, you might want to hold your finger here and mark it and turn to the book of Acts chapter 6. Go back few pages to Acts chapter 6. The book of Acts is a record of the ascension of Christ, and it covers exactly 30 years. How do we know that? Because of the chronological clues that Luke put all the way through the book. It covers the very first 30 years of church history. And so, indeed, if by the time Paul writes, for instance, to the Philippians, and he mentions two offices, and he assumes that they are both in place in every local church, it's important that we ask, well, where did this office begin? And you would expect that it began with the birth of the church as found here in Acts chapter 6. Now, let me bring you into the context. When God goes to work, so does the devil. The devil hates it when a church is growing, when people are finding Christ, when lives are being changed. And so he hated what was happening in the city of Jerusalem. And so if you remember in Acts chapter 4, he tried to scare them, the apostles, the leaders in the church, to stop speaking in the name of Christ. He was unsuccessful. 
So in Acts chapter 5, he tries a different strategy. He tries to corrupt them. And if you remember Ananias and Sapphira, who brought some evil into the church by lying to the apostles and the leadership. That didn't stop God's work. So then he tries to stop them by force, imprison them. That doesn't stop. And so he tries another strategy. He tries to create trouble within the rank and file. And that's what you have here in Acts chapter 6. And I want us first to consider how they diagnose the problem. There's a problem, and first they diagnose it. And that's often half the battle to solving any problem, to identify specifically what is the issue that is at hand. We read here in verse 1, now at this time, while the disciples were in increasing in number. This church is growing in quantum leaps. They are in an upper room right near the Temple Mount. 120 of them spill out on the day of Pentecost, and thousands of people are converted. Right outside the temple, even to this day, are all these mikvahs, these baths in which they baptized all those new believers. 120 were initially in the upper room. Peter stands up and preached, and 3,000 people are saved on the day of Pentecost. A few days later go by, and in the in-between, God says day by day he was adding to their number. Peter stands up in the city of Jerusalem again, gives a powerful sermon. This time, 5,000 men, excluding women and children. They count just the heads of household. There's so many. So conservatively, somewhere around 20,000 people are saved on that day. And the Scripture says then in Acts 5 that multitudes of men and women were constantly being added. Where there's life, there's growth. And so why was this church in Jerusalem growing? Because they had a beautiful building? No, there were no buildings, at least for almost 190 years. There were no buildings for the church to meet in. They either met outside or they met in homes. They didn't have formal gathering buildings like this. Was it because of some church growth conference? No. All of their church growth methodology came from the Scriptures itself. Was it because they had a great choir or slick drama? No, none of the above. They were growing because God was moving. And so in Acts 5.42, it says, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Christ. They were talking about the Lord Jesus. And I'll tell you what, that's why the church in America is shrinking. Eighty percent of the churches in America are shrinking. They're not increasing, they are shrinking. And we'll talk about this in a few weeks when we come to Revelation 17 and 18, because the Bible prophesizes of a day at the end of time when people will turn away from the faith. And I believe the seeds are being sown for that time frame. And I'm talking about evangelical churches as well. It's predicted by the Wall Street Journal that some 50,000 churches are going to close in the next decade. They're closing all over the place. Our church in Grays was down to basically four or five people, and they invited us to take the property. And by God's grace, we are going to believe God to do something in that place. We believe He is going to do something, and He's going to grow that church. But please understand, there's nothing wrong with a small church 
If a church is in Montana and the neighbors are five miles apart, nothing wrong with that. But if a church is not growing, especially if they are surrounded by a population base, our population base is small compared to a place like Atlanta where you have eight or 10 million people. We have 170,000 in our county. It's a small county respective to other places in our nation. But if a church is not growing, it is unhealthy. Because, just listen, a church can't just be stagnant. We can't just assume because God has brought people to Christ in the past that he's going to continue to do that. We will either grow or we will die, but we will not remain neutral. You will either evangelize or you will fossilize. You cannot stand still. Not if we are to be obedient to the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is something that everyone within the sound of my voice who is born again, you are to own it. You are to own the Great Commission. As you go, you are to make disciples of all people. And so we read here in verse one of these growing pains that came in this church. Now at that time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. There's growing pains, and very often in Scripture, God makes parallels between the physical body and the spiritual body. You know what growing pains are. A teenager has trouble fixing his hair or her hair just doesn't do right. Their face is breaking out and their bones seem to hurt, and those are growing pains. Well, it often happens in the spiritual realm as well. How do you effectively minister to a growing church? And this church in Jerusalem was just exploding. They had a couple of choices. They could say, well, look, we we can't minister to this many people. We're just going to choose to just stop. And that's what many churches have done. The average church in America is 75 people. Not because they're in Montana. They may be in a city of millions of people where there should be dozens of large churches, but there's not. Why? Because the people have chosen not to grow. They say, we like this number, 100, 200 people. Everyone knows each other. We don't want the church to grow. Listen, if there's life, there's growth, and if there's food that is being given from the pulpit then healthy sheep will reproduce. The church should grow. You say, but I want it to be personal. It can be. And one of the models that we have adopted as a local assembly is right out of the book of Acts. You have a very large church, but you have churches within the church. We call them adult Bible fellowships. I was telling a visitor yesterday that the church will dramatically shrink for you if you come to an ABF in the hour that is prior to this for you here in the second service. You'll get to know people. They'll get to know you. They'll pray for you. They'll visit you. They'll fellowship with you. It's a very important dimension of a healthy church. So one, you can just say, we're not going to grow. Or you can say, well, look, they got a problem. Let them solve it. We're not going to get our hands dirty. And so there was this complaint. If you're using the old English of the King James, it says a murmuring. And there's this complaint, this murmuring between the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraistic Jews. The Hellenistic Jews are those Jews because of the diaspora who grew up outside of the nation of Israel. 
And so they spoke Greek, they understood the Greek culture, they were very Greek in their Jewishness. And then there were Hebraistic Jews who, who grew up within the confines of that place that we call Israel. And of course, any pious Jew who was committed to what Moses had written would recognize that at least three times during the year, you were to literally physically visit the temple where God had called you to be. And they were there for an event called Pentecost. We think of it often just in New Testament terms, but it really goes back centuries, millennia. It was something that the Jews practiced every year. So there was this murmuring. You know what a murmur is. It's a half-uttered, half-concealed problem that you have with another person. And so instead of solving the problem, you just murmur about the problem. Now, sometimes people think, well, when you have problems, it's a lack of good leadership. Not always. In this particular church, the leaders were the spiritual giants known as the apostles, known here as the Twelve. These were great godly men, 11 of whom had spent their life in ministry under Christ's tutelage, and even the twelfth one that had also been in and around Christ and had witnessed his resurrection. So they diagnosed the problem. There's, there's a problem with the wheels on meals ministry. All these people had come into Jerusalem for Pentecost. On this particular Pentecost, what it represented is fulfilled, and thousands and thousands of people are coming to know the Lord. What God had promised all the way back in the Garden of Eden, the Jewish nation realized had now taken place, and no one wanted to leave. And so when you came with your family and your, your mother, who maybe had lost her husband, and and your resources ran out, how were these people going to be taken care of? There was already a fixed plan for the widows because it was something that went back into the old covenant that the Jewish people were to care for their widows and the orphans. But all these outsiders, it's not an issue of prejudice here, it's just an issue of organization, they were not being cared for. So they diagnosed the problem. Second, they determined the priority. Beyond the diagnosis, they determine the priority. How are they going to solve this problem? And the solution was to select some deacons. What we find here in Acts 6, the very first deacons in the entire Bible. And the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to diakoneo, in order to deacon. It's the word deacon in verb form. It's not a high priority for us to neglect what God has called us to do in order to deacon or serve the tables. Now, again, the implication of this murmuring is it's against the apostles. Why aren't you apostles serving and taking care of this issue? And their point here in verse 2 is we are not going to compromise what God has called us to do in order to meet this legitimate need. They weren't against food. It's necessary to survive. They weren't against meeting the needs of widows. God commanded it in the Old Testament. They weren't against being organized. God is a God of order. That is a manifestation of the Spirit that He has ordered life. They were, however, not to neglect 
the preaching of God's Word in prayer. And in case they missed it, they repeated a second time in verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Listen, when a senior pastor is continually available for everyone, then he will not be able to do his job well. You see, all apostles were pastors. Obviously, not all pastors are apostles. But the apostles are also called pastors. And like the apostles, I share the same responsibility as outlined in the pastoral epistles to commit myself to the ministry of the Word in prayer. And the ministry of the Word goes in two directions. It goes to the saints, whom I am to feed, and it goes to the lost, to whom I am to evangelize. And a pastor who is not feeding the flock and who is not evangelizing the lost is not doing his job, and that has to be coupled in prayer. See, you don't see my prayer life. My wife might, but you don't see it. But it is in prayer. When a man goes into his prayer closet, when a man gets on his knees as he prepares his messages, as a man gets on his knees as he prepares to meet his people for counseling, as a man gets on his knees as he prepares to share the gospel, you don't see that, but that is the lifeblood that changes how a man is able to preach to the lost and to help those who are saved. So they diagnose the problem. They determine the priority, but then they delegate the responsibility. They delegate the responsibility. You see, again, the pastor who's always available will not be a successful pastor. And every pastor feels the pressure of people wanting him to meet the need. Oh, pastor, I expected you to visit me in the hospital. I expected you to come to my home. I expected you to do this and you to do that. And a pastor who seeks to do that all the time will not be a good pastor. What will happen? He'll either burn out. Most pastors don't rust out. They burn out. And I've met a lot of burnout pastors in the 40 years I've been in ministry who've just quit. I remember my wife and I and children, we were heading up to New England to visit my parents, and we stopped in a bed and breakfast in Pennsylvania. It was economical and kind of fun, and they fed you breakfast, these Mennonite Amish families. And here was this Mennonite who was so burned out. I said, well, what do you do? Well, I'm a landscaper. I said, how long have you been doing landscaping? Well, actually, I was a pastor for 11 years. And then he went on about the evils of what he faced in his church and how it literally broke his health. And he was somewhat bitter. You see, and when you respond to that constantly, then you neglect feeding the flock. And then when you neglect feeding the flock, you don't have spiritual health, and you create more problems, and you're just putting out fire after fire after fire. And rather than the church being healthy and growing, it's decaying and it's rotting. D.L. Moody used to say, it's better to put 10 men to work than for a pastor to try to do the work of 10 men. And so what do they do here? They delegate the problem. Look at verse 3. But select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, 
The apostles act with such great wisdom. This is a local church problem, and since it's a dispute amongst the people, they initially ask the people to solve the dispute, but the final approval belonged to them. If they brought seven men whom they felt were unqualified, they would have said, no, whom we, circle that pronoun, whom we may put in charge of the task. In addition, in their wisdom, they select an odd number, seven. Remember, the controversy is between the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraistic Jews. And if you study the names carefully, you discover that they choose one out of one side that's different from the other. It could have been three and four. It could have been, uh, you know, five and two. But they have to come to terms together with this odd number called seven. And they're not just looking for the first seven warm bodies that they can grab to serve the tables. But these are men who are qualified. These are seven men who will serve, and again, it's the cognate form of the word deacon. They're going to deacon the tables. Again, just two offices that remain to this day, the office of elder and the office of deacon. And what's kind of interesting, when you look at the office of elder in the New Testament, there's a very clear job description. But when you look at the office of deacon, there really is no specific job description, and I think there's a reason for that, because the deacons serve at the will of the elders, and so deacons can do all kinds of things. Now, please note here, select from among yourselves seven men. Circle that word, men. It's the Greek word andros. And when God uses this word, it's not the word anthropos, we get our word anthropology, that sometimes comes into our English Bible as men, meaning men and women alike, like brethren. Now, that's a different word, but that's a generic word, meaning brothers and sisters, not just men. But when God wants to emphasize a particular sex, then he uses a particular word, and that's what he uses here, seven men. And that's why in the early church fathers, the late church fathers, and all of the Protestant reformers, and for 1,900 years, there were no women deacons. Now, let me just say, parenthetically, there are some churches that have deaconettes, and uh, those deaconettes don't function in an authoritative way. And they're trying to build a case where a woman doesn't teach or exercise authority over men. But if you really understand the office of deacon, and if a man really deacons well, he's going to be in authoritative decision-making kinds of issues. And God calls men to lead in that way. Now, let me again affirm the fact that men and women are equal. Christ is equal to the Father, and yet the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11 that he submits to the Father. Men and women, husband and wife are equal, and yet the Bible teaches the husband is the head of his wife. If you have no head in a home, you have no direction. If you have two heads, you have a monster. And many times when people come in and they say, well, I've got this rebellious teenager on my hands and they don't respect my authority, one of the first questions I ask the couple is, how do you interface with each other? Is your child learning to respect authority from the way you deal with one another? See, the smallest microcosm of life is the family. And when the family begins to break apart, 
then the nation begins to disintegrate. So the Bible teaches, however, that while we are equal, we have different roles. And so, for instance, there are some things that only men can do in the church. There are some things that only women can do in the church. Take, for instance, Titus chapter 2. The church is instructed with these words. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women. And then he gives a curriculum for women's ministry that basically is totally ignored today in most so-called women ministries. Older women are to encourage the younger women. And it's very, very clear what they are to do. Now, that just jumps out of the text if you understand the context. In verse 2, Paul says, Titus, you teach the older men. In verse 3, he says, Titus, you teach the older women. In verse 6, he says, Titus, you teach the young men. In verse 9, he says, Titus, you teach the bond slaves. But here in verse 3, he says, don't you teach the younger women. You let the older women teach the younger women. Why? Because number one, older women are more qualified to relate to the needs of young women by virtue of being a woman. And number two, no doubt to protect him as a pastor from infatuation that could easily happen with a pastor who cares for a younger woman. You see, if a younger woman is in a situation where her husband ignores her and doesn't listen to her and is rough with her, and then he comes into an office where a man is godly and sensitive and he listens, before you know it, she can become infatuated with him, not because he's so good-looking, but because he's met an emotional need in her life that her own husband is not meeting. And because we've ignored this simple piece of advice, there have been scores of scandal in the church. Titus, you teach the older women, but they in turn are to disciple the younger woman. And I just wonder, the price that we have paid because we've ignored this simple instruction. And again, it's not a matter of equality, it is a matter of roles. So first and foremost, when you look for servants, select from among you brethren, notice seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of the task. Not the first seven warm bodies you find, but seven qualified men, men of good reputation, men who are spirit-filled Christians. Men who have wisdom, and wisdom is more than knowledge. Wisdom is the ability to take God's Word and to apply it to the everyday dimensions of life. They diagnose the problem. They determine the priority. They delegate the responsibility. Notice they discover the effect. What is the effect that they discover because they are doing this God's way? Notice now verse 7. And the Word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Do you know what that means? It just means they were growing faster. They were growing faster than before because they were doing things God's way. And a church very often will just stand or fall on its leadership. Now, there's no easy growth because where there is growth, 
there will be problems. But where there are problems, there are solutions, and God gives answers as to how we can reach those solutions. Look, I'd rather be in a church that is alive and growing and facing challenges than a church is as dead as a doornail. Paul, Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the believers, all the saints, we're all saints. Unlike in Catholicism, just a few people. We're all saints according to the Bible. In Christ, that's where our sainthood comes. It comes from a position, not from the things we've done, who are in Philippi, including the leaders. Elders, pastors, overseers, bishops, all the same office, and deacons. And in a few years... Just a few brief years of church history, that church in Jerusalem would continue to grow. It would get persecuted. It would begin to spread into places like Antioch, and God would just bless and bless and bless. Now, that's the origins of the office. That's how it all began. And as you would expect, it began in the city of Jerusalem. Now he moves to the credentials for the office. Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Initially, there's some broad credentials, men full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, men of good reputation. But as the church grows, Paul, by the time he writes 1 Timothy, it's towards the end of his life, he's not asking for the office. The office already existed. He is delineating, though, in great detail the requirements for the office. In Acts 6, the first verse of Scripture from the New Testament hadn't been penned. Matthew 1.1 hadn't even been written. But now, as the New Testament is being written, God unfolds the office, and He gives the credentials for the office. So gird up your minds here for action. Sharpen your mental uh, thoughts today. Don't let your mind drift, because these are not just qualifications for you, whether you ever become a deacon or not, but for people that you might disciple someday. If you're a woman and you're discipling young men in your home, these are qualities you want to build into their lives that they might someday be leaders in the church. Some of you are going to be in a position maybe in your life where you're involved in either aspiring for the office or choosing people for the office, and you need to know what it is that God wants. Number one, a deacon must be a man of dignity. A deacon is to be a man of dignity. Verse 8 begins, deacons likewise... Likewise, that's important. It communicates the same kind of emphasis that was placed on the office of elder or overseer back in verse 2. In other words, these things must also be true of deacons. A deacon must be a certain way. These aren't suggestions. These are not optional. These are essential. These are not just nice things. These are necessary things. And if we blow them off and we bring people into the leadership who are not truly qualified, we bring problems into the leadership and dissension into the church. A deacon is to be a man of dignity. There's not a single English word that will render the Greek. There's like a diamond where you can look at different facets, and so different English translations render it in different ways. But it's a man basically who has a seriousness of purpose. It's a man who has respect in his conduct. He's serious and he's respectful. He's a man that you can look up to. It's a positive term that I suppose is further defined by the three negative terms that follow. So negatively, he said a deacon is not to be double-tongued. He's not to be double-tongued. 
Deacons, we're told, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued. The deacon, in other words, does not say one thing to one person and something else to another. And because he does not say one thing to one member and something entirely opposite to another person, you can depend on what he says. Many of you have read Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Next to the Bible, it's the most printed book in the history of the printing press. And if you remember, there's one pastor named Mr. Two-Tongues. And then there's a man in the congregation who's named Mr. Smooth Man. And then there's another guy in the congregation called Mr. Anything, and then another fellow called Mr. Facing Two Ways. They're all people, if you've read this uh, fictional uh, analogy of life, these are people who are double-tongued. They are people of duplicity. And the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word is also translated in places like Proverbs of a talebearer, of a gossiper. So like in Proverbs 11, the word is used in the Greek Old Testament, he who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. And so since a deacon potentially interfaces with a lot of different people, in the process of serving people, he will often become aware of issues and problems, and he will be placed in confidence. And if he's not a tight-lipped person, then you can't trust him. And if you share a confidence with the deacon, and then he goes and blathers it to someone who does not honor, you know, what has been said, then you've got a real problem, and his ministry begins to disintegrate. Third, a deacon is not to be addicted to wine. He's not to be addicted to wine. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine. We saw this same qualification in reference to the elder, and the Greek New Testament literally reads, one who sits alongside of wine. In other words, God is saying, when you see a man who sits alongside a glass of wine, you're looking at a man who is not qualified to be an elder or a deacon in the local church. Now, this verse, any more than the rest of the New Testament, does not teach total abstinence, and you would not expect that in the first century culture. And I've never taught total abstinence, so hear me out. But don't assume that I am giving you from this verse the free use of alcohol, because I don't believe the Bible is speaking of that. If you read the Scriptures clearly, you will see that there are two things that God forbids. Number one, He forbids drunkenness. A pastor in Texas called me and asked me to help him counsel a family on Thursday night about a drunk in their church, a young woman who is a drunk. And let's call her what she is. I said, let me call you what you are. You are a drunk. You're not an alcoholic. I said, until you face that, you're never going to move forward. There's no such thing as alcoholism. If alcoholism is a disease as the world portrays it, then you would not be morally accountable to God for such a behavior. But God says, do not be deceived. 
neither, and he gives this list of sins in 1 Corinthians 6, fornicators, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor drunkards shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then the next verse says, and such were some of you. So number one, until you see getting drunk is a sin and not as a disease, you're never going to move forward. So number one, God's against drunkenness. Number two, God is against the use of strong drink. Now, before you can apply any texts of Scripture to the day in which we live in, you always have to ask, what did it mean to the original audience? And when you understand what it means to the original audience, then you can make proper application in our day. Now, most of you here this morning do not have your head covered as women. Sometimes there's one or two or three in our congregation, and I respect them for their conviction. Is it because we don't believe the Bible when Paul says a woman should have her head covered in church? No, but because when we understand what that meant in the original context, then we understand the timeless principles. Jesus said, you're blessed when you wash one another's feet. Have you washed anyone's feet lately? Probably not. Though I did wash one person. Who's my dad? My dad was so sick towards the end, he, he couldn't bend down to wash his own feet. It was a privilege. But there's an eternal principle that God gives us that we are to understand and apply. So what is strong drink? Are we talking about the rum and the vodkas and the whiskeys? No, those didn't exist in Bible times. Some say it came maybe as early as seven centuries, and there seems to be one reference. Most would date the distilled liquors to about 1,000 A.D. or beyond, but it's at least 700 to 1,000 years after the Bible is completed where man in his evil ingenuity figures out how to make liquor beyond any strength one could ever imagine. Now, understand that when you see the word wine in the Bible, it is used in different ways. It can be used of fermented wine or it can be used of unfermented wine. If you're a Jew and you had a wine press, as it was called, and you, and you squeezed all the grapes and the juice, they came, what would you call it? You'd call it wine. They use the same term to describe what is sometimes accentuated with the word new wine as they would wine that would later ferment. Now, God tells us that wine is a mocker and strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. God does not want you, as we'll see in a moment, to use strong drink. But to say that all the wine in the Bible was unfermented just isn't smart. Whether it's the Hebrew word typically used yayin, or the Greek word used oinos, it can refer to either fresh wine that is just newly squeezed or wine that because of the fall and everything is rotting because when man fell, the creation fell. It can also refer to wine that has been fermented. So obviously, Paul is talking about the real hooch when he says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, there's a kind of wine that can make you drunk. But to say that the Bible teaches total abstinence is not entirely accurate. And that strong drink, like in Deuteronomy 14, could be considered as a blessing because of the reasons they used it. For instance, like in the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
Jesus said the good Samaritan poured wine on his cuts. Why? Because wine was an antiseptic of sorts. Like you use uh, rubbing alcohol today on a cut and it kills the bacteria. And then they poured oil on top of that that served as the band-aid to cover it over. And certainly wine was mixed with water. When Paul writes to Timothy, he said, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Timothy, as a pastor, in no way, of course, wanted to stain his reputation. He did not in any way, shape, or form want to be viewed as one attached to wine or even under the influence of wine. And so he'd come to a point where he would drink water only. And if you know Timothy's life, you know he traveled quite a bit. And that was not the best thing, certainly not in the first century. If you looked at missionary pictures 100 years ago, especially those in Africa where the movement in America had given focus, you would see often a missionary with a pith helmet on and a wine satchel around his neck. Why? Because they would take that wine and they would squirt it into the water and it would kill the bacteria and they would make it safe. Strong drink was naturally fermented wine in beer. But they would use that, and in this sense, it was a blessing, and that you didn't have to boil every cup of water. Look, when I go to certain countries of the world, I don't even brush my teeth with the water. And I've said this to people traveling with me. I said, don't brush your teeth with the water. They said, well, I won't swallow. Don't brush your teeth with the water. Believe me. I, I mean, I close my eyes and hold my lips tight when I take a shower. Because in some cultures, the water is so bad, it will just make you sick, and you will regret it for the next several days. And so in the Talmud, for instance, the Talmud is the rabbinical manual that Jews use. There was a time, of course, when they were given the law of Moses, and, and the Jewish people would communicate, well, when Moses said this, this is what he was referring to. And they had the oral tradition. And there came a time around 200 years after Christ where they said, we better write all these things down because a lot of our Jewish rabbis are dying off. And, and so they codified it in a book called the Talmud. And in the Talmud, when they had the various Jewish festivals. There were some times of year when they had fresh grape juice. And then there were some times of year when they didn't have it, and it specified that they were to mix it in a four-to-one ratio. Four parts water, one part wine, because they did not want to be guilty of using strong drink. One of the oldest existing pieces of Christian literature that has come down to us is a book called the Didash. It's a second century A.D. pastoral manual. And there are times of year when the church would gather and they had fresh grape juice, what they called wine. And they would use that at the Lord's table. But lest they be guilty of using strong drink, lest they be guilty of causing a brother to stumble... When that was not available in a day when they didn't have Welch's grape juice with all the preservatives in it, they would mix it in a four-to-one ratio, lest they be guilty of using strong drink. So in this sense, strong drink could be a blessing because it would give you purified water, it would give you an antiseptic on cuts, and it would also be something that you could use for a dying, despairing man. In Proverbs 31, give strong drink 
to him who is perishing, and wine to him whose life is bitter. That, by the way, is a Hebrew parallelism, the way it's grammatically constructed. It's not talking about two events, but one event. A man who's dying, and therefore his life, physically speaking, is bitter. Just like today, we give morphine to a, a man, a woman, a child who's in incredible pain, not to make him a junkie, not to give them a high, but as an act of mercy. And so it is here. You say, well, listen, I'm one of these people. I, I, I drink. I just drink in, in moderation. If you are using straight wine and beer, you are using strong drink, and God says it's foolish. And if your children end up modeling your behavior, well, Dad, I'm, look, you talk to any college student here who goes to the College of the Charleston or Clemson or USC, you know what they're doing every weekend? They're getting loaded and blasted all across that campus. It is unbelievable what is going on. You want to model that for your kids? When they go off to these secular universities, well, dad had a beer. I guess I can have a beer. I won't get, I'll just have a beer. Listen, the first time you had a beer, I told this lady, the first time you had a glass of wine, you got buzzed. But I said, it doesn't take a glass of wine anymore, does it? In fact, she was way past wine. But the first time you had a glass of wine, you had a buzzed mind. Look, the law is sharper than a lot of Christians today. A buzzed mind is a drunk mind, and a buzzed mind is breaking the greatest of all the commandments to love God with your whole heart, mind, and strength. It's foolish. And I'll just tell you straight out, I've never, ever, ever met a pastor who consistently leads people to Jesus Christ and preaches the Word of God with power who uses alcohol in any way. Just doesn't happen. And it won't happen in your life either. And yeah, you'll be the odd man out because what I am teaching today was standard evangelical doctrine 40 and 50 years ago. But now we have this new generation, the so-called, you know, reformed people who want to have their wine. Oh my, what a sad day we live in. A deacon. Listen, if you come into a restaurant this week, and I'm at my table, and I have a bottle of Budweiser. By the way, I wouldn't want to give them one dime. If you're watching the second half of the Super Bowl tonight, assuming you are serving in Awana, they'll have all the wicked beer commercials. Beer and sensuality mixed together, because that's the way it works. Habakkuk says, woe to you who gives your neighbor to drink to make him drunk, to see his nakedness. Many an evil man knew, knows that he can seduce a woman with alcohol, and a, and a woman who would not do certain things will do it when she gets under the influence. I wouldn't want to support that. I won't even buy their packaged eggs that they sell. I don't want to put one skinny dime into their coffers. Now listen, the burden of proof for you to show otherwise is on you. It's not on me. When I was in a Jewish home a few weeks ago for a Sabbath, they had fresh grape juice. 
And I was in another Jewish home a year before that, and they had 1% wine. Why? Because it's unlike the 8 to 18% wine, and I didn't want to drink it, and I didn't, but still, I'm not saying that makes me more righteous. But why? Because those Jewish men who took the Old Testament Scripture seriously did not want to violate themselves by using strong drink, and I can respect that. Next, a deacon is not to be fond of sordid gain. We read, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine. And I hope you wouldn't see me in a restaurant this week with that bottle of Budweiser. I didn't finish my illustration. You bring your pagan friend up to me. It would be an embarrassment to you. There's a pastor. Look, there's pastors in this town. You want to go have a glass of wine and beer? They'll gladly sit down. And I'll tell you, they'll fill the seats. We've got a compromised generation of young adults who call themselves Christians. Not to be fond of sword again. It doesn't mean that a deacon can't be rich. It doesn't mean that a deacon can't make a lot of money. The Net Bible renders it not greedy for gain. The ESV says not greedy for dishonest gain. Negatively, it describes a person who gains money illegitimately, either by overcharging someone or maybe underpaying them. Or because his heart is greedy, he might even steal. And historically, because it wasn't wise, Paul, when he had an offering, he didn't handle the money back. I never handled the money back. He had some others who handled the money with him. And the deacons would often do that throughout the centuries. And if you had a deacon who pilfered the money bag like Judas did you got a problem, so you can't have one who is indeed fond of sordid gain. Look at the next one. A deacon is to have a clear conscience, a clear conscience, holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, this is a reference to personal purity. It refers to a person who, who maintains a, a close and sensitive walk with the Lord Jesus. The mystery of the faith, the, the faith here is articular, not inactive faith, but the faith, Jude speaks about the faith delivered once and for all by the apostles. That is the body of truth. He holds to the faith. It's not just an intellectual understanding of the Bible, but it is within a clear conscience. It's a life-changing understanding of the Bible. There's a lot of Christians who traffic in biblical truth year after year after year, and it's just an academic exercise, and they're here to learn to become a smarter sinner, but not to be more like Jesus Christ. But here's a deacon who, who practices what he professes. And when you put him into a position of leadership, he's not a person who yawns over the truth. He's not bored with the word of God. He's excited about it because it's changing his life because he's able to hold it in a clear conscience. And what he does in the church and what he does outside the church is consistent. Joseph, if he were around today, he would have made a great deacon because he was a servant's servant. And of course, he's also an illustration of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you remember, he's a good example of a man who had a pure conscience. And so Potiphar's wife would continually and habitually go after him because he was a handsome guy, and he responded to her one day, how could I do this great evil and sin against my God? He brings it right back to the living God whom he served, and she tried, and she tried, and she tried again, and finally she said, lie with me, 
and he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. You see, who you really are is who you are when no one else is looking. When you go home tonight and what kind of internet sites you visit and what kind of television programs you watch, who you really are is what you are when no one else is listening, watching, but God is watching and he is listening and God wants a deacon to be the same in the church as he is outside of the church. And Joseph was that kind of fella, though the church had not yet, of course, been born. But he knew that secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. Look next, a deacon is to be tested. He is to be tested. Verse 10 says, these men also must first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons, if they are beyond reproach. Tested. We have a process at Community Bible Church where we test a man. We will often ask the deacon body, who do you perceive who are servants? And there are many who are servants, but for one reason or another, they will never qualify for the office, but they're servants. And then there are some who the elders come up with, and, and we've had a list of names. I've had a list for about three months. I've been praying over these different guys and for them, and and then we met uh, this week as an elder board, and we went through the list, and we agreed on a certain list, and we're going to send them a deacon survey. It's not to say we want you to be a deacon, but we just, we just want to get to know you better. And sometimes there are things in a man's life that we don't know, that they only know, and some things that they should only know, that they shouldn't share with the general public. You know, there are people who come across evangelical pulpits and they share the gruesome, horrible details of their past, things that God says aren't even to be spoken in public. Anyway, we survey them, and if we feel like, ah, yeah, there's a sense this man might be a deacon, then we test them. And again, we're just not looking for a warm body. Initially, we're looking for someone who has a servant's heart. I mean, if a, a church says, well, we're just going to take him, and we hope he does the job, and we hope he serves. No, we're already looking for someone who, in some respects, is a proven servant, and they meet certain biblical qualifications, which is the function of the survey, and then we test them for a period of six months. We asked them during that six months to take on some of the responsibilities of a deacon to make sure that this is a good fit for them. And if at the end of that six months they're in agreement, then we ordain them. So a deacon is to be tested. Next, a deacon is to have a qualified wife, a qualified wife. Notice the next verse, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, fearful in all things. Now, I do not believe this is speaking of a third office, deaconettes, as some have tried to argue it, and for at least three reasons. First, in Acts chapter 6, the only place in all the Bible where the origin of the office can be pinpointed, God specifies seven men in deference to women. Secondly, the church fathers, early and late, all of the Protestant reformers, 1,900 years of church history, a stream of thought all the way from the apostles said it was an office for men only. And really, a deacon is in a position where he is exercising a certain amount of authority under the leadership of the elders. 
But third, the context indicates that he is referring to men in this office. Again, beginning in verse 12, where he comes right back into the qualifications, he's giving male distinctives. For instance, we'll come to it in a moment, deacons must be husbands of only one wife. If you can tell me how a woman can be the husband of one wife, again, I can tell you how she can be a deacon. So what is he really referring to here? Well, the word here is gune, it just means women, and sometimes context determines. So the New American Standard very conservatively just says women. But for instance, this is the same word when Paul says in Ephesians 5, men, you are to love your wives. It's the same word gune, just in plural form. But because the context is dealing with a husband and wife, we typically translate it wives instead of women. You love your woman, so to speak. And that's what's in view here. He's talking about the wives of deacons. In fact, the King James renders it. It's more interpretive, but I think they're right. In the same way, their wives are to be women, worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate, trustworthy. The ESV, the Net Bible, the HCSB says their wives likewise must. I think he's speaking here of the deacon's wives. Why would he bring them up? By virtue of the nature of the office of deacon. Again, while there's a specific job description for an elder, there's not a specific job description for a deacon. They serve at the will of the elders, but because they serve very often, they are helping the elders in solving problems. And so, because they are involved in problem-solving issues and serving people, they will become privy of information. So, a deacon goes to a widow's home or the wife of a deployed Marine, and he doesn't go alone to be above reproach and to make uh, no uh, bounds for a false accusation, and he brings his wife with him. And she begins to open up and share problems. And if that woman is not tight-lipped, then his ministry is ruined. If she's a gossip, just like if the man's a gossip, he can't be trusted. She can't have a loose tongue. Listen, if she's a malicious, that's the devil's job to be malicious. And there are many a good man who I've seen who I'd love to ask to be a deacon. But their wife disqualifies them. She must be temperate, not given to extremes. She must be faithful in all things. She can't have a casual attitude towards the local church. Oh, I'll serve. I'll come if it's convenient. Oh, my husband is a deacon. He has to be there. But I'll come if it's convenient. That kind of person shouldn't be a deacon or an elder. A deacon is to be the husband of one wife. A deacon is to be the husband of one wife. We covered this, but let me review it because God reviews it, so he obviously wants us to hear it a second time. Deacons must be the husbands of only one wife. Literally, the Greek New Testament again reads a one-woman man. And there have been many views on how to interpret this. I told you about the Roman Catholic view. Obviously, they have priests, bishops, cardinals, popes who are celibate. So how do they deal with a passage like this? They spiritualize it. They say the pope, the priest, he's married to the church. The children that are mentioned in the text are the members of his congregation, but he's not literally married. He's married to his ministry. 
That's a total distortion of basic rules of Greek grammar. And when you spiritualize a text like that, you can make the Bible mean whatever you want. Some understand this as a requirement to be married, that he has to be a married person. The problem with that is, again, it's used in reference to an elder. And Paul was an elder. Peter was an elder. Peter was married. Paul was not. But they were fellow elders. And if Paul, who was an apostle and an elder, was not married, then that means that a single man could serve in the office of deacon or elder. But you would expect him to deal with married men and his approach. Why? Because 99% of us are called to be married in this life. Now, not all are called to be married, and they're not unspiritual. God has set apart some women, some men, to be single their whole lives. 1 Corinthians 7 teaches that, to give undistracted devotion to the kingdom. And you shouldn't try to marry off someone that God has called to be single. But it would not only disqualify Paul, it would disqualify the Lord Jesus, who is the chief overseer of the church. So whatever it means for the elder, it must mean for the deacon. Some have said, well, this is a disqualification from a man who's a bigamist or a polygamist, someone who has two wives or someone who has many wives. In other words, they understand the phrase to be one wife at a time. I don't think so. Number one, it's against Roman law, just as it is against American law, but I'm not sure for how long. I mean, if a man can marry a man, and the Supreme Court says, no, that's okay, and a woman can marry a woman. You can call it a marriage. It's not a marriage. You can call it whatever you want. You can say a dog has five legs. You can call his tail a leg and say he has five legs. He doesn't have five legs. He has four legs. And you can call two men, two women married. They're not married. I don't care what the Supreme Court calls it. And it's just, it's just a matter of time. Well, if he can marry a man and she can marry, why can't I marry five women? It's common. It's just a matter of time unless this nation repents. Historically, from the early church fathers into the middle of the 20th century, Bible students understood this to describe a person who's been married only once. And within that, there are two positions, as I described a few weeks ago. Some would say that if you are married and your wife dies and then you marry again, then you are excluded from serving in the office of elder or deacon because you're no longer a one-woman man. And so there is a restriction, they would say, for remarried widowers. And not many people have espoused that position, though I know one great expositor who is a professor at Dallas Seminary, he taught that, and when his wife died and he got married a second time, he stepped down from the office of pastor. I don't think so, as I explained a few weeks ago, because the reverse phrase is given in 1 Timothy 5, 9, let a widow be put on the list only if she's not less than 60 years old. That's an old woman. If you're 60, you're an old woman, just mark it down, having been the wife of one man. And again, he is describing just the opposite, a one-woman man. And so Paul, of course, will encourage the younger women to get married again and not to remain single the rest of their life. And I don't think he would do that so that they could later be cut off the special honorary list that certain women were put on. The less restricted view is that it refers to someone who is not necessarily lost his wife and then married again, but someone who had been divorced. 
and remarried. Now, again, let me just say that men who have been divorced and who cannot serve as deacons are not second-class citizens any more than those who can't serve as elders. And it has nothing to do with forgiveness. It has nothing to do with whether this happened before you were saved or not. It has everything to do with God wanting to protect marriages in the church. Remember when God in Malachi 2 highlights the sin of divorce, one of six sins that Malachi the prophet addresses, and one of the reasons he hates divorce, I, the God of Israel, hate divorce, is because what it does to a man and a woman tearing apart two living people and what it does to the children. And many of you have walked down that road, and you know the pain, and many of you have told me, Pastor, if you can keep people from the pain I've been through, please do so. Well, how does God do that? He models it in the two offices, His ideal. He models the ideal because it puts salt back in the church. Look, if I'm on my third marriage and I'm up here telling you, let me tell you how to have a successful marriage, it's not very believable. And if you're a deacon and you're out in ministry to people and, and you're helping them and encouraging them with their marriage problem and you're on your second or third or fourth or even fifth, we got people in the church who are on fifth marriages. I'm not throwing rocks at them. I'm glad they're here and saved and forgiven. But over half of us are on second marriages. Why? Because the sins of the culture come into the church. And Paul wrote this in a day when divorce was widespread. Some of the younger pastors say, well, he's a one-woman kind of man in his heart. That is a non-flirtatious kind of person. And they argue that because they don't want to deal with the hard issue of divorce in a culture where it is so widespread. Well, that's given in the qualities that follow, temperate, self-controlled, like with an elder. I mean, if you've got a pastor or you have a deacon who's always putting his arms around the women and always lingering for a hug and turning his head every time a woman goes by to examine her, you've got a guy who shouldn't be in the office anyway. But that's an easy way to handle it. Now, I might be wrong, and maybe S. Lewis Johnson will be right and. And it really makes it simple. Married only once, doesn't matter whether divorce or you lost your wife, you get married. Married only once. Maybe his more restricted view is correct. I take the less restricted view because that's what church history, for the most part, has affirmed for 2,000 years. Now, today, evangelicals, they don't care. I mean, most of them, they just don't care anymore. They don't want to offend anybody. They don't want to ruffle any feathers, make anybody mad, because they'll lose you. And that's what all these young guys are doing. That's why Moody said we can drink, smoke, and gamble in moderation. We don't want to make the new professors upset. Like that's the kind of professor you need at Moody Bible Institute? I doubt it. A deacon is to be a good manager of his own home. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their households. Again, if he can't make it work in his home, don't export it into the church. For an elder, his children must be believers. 
But for a deacon, he has to be able to manage them when they are under the roof. Finally, just briefly, the compensation from the office. Beyond the creation in Act 6, the credentials, we find the compensation further delineated. And those deacons who serve in this church will reap many rewards. And God spells out at least two here. Number one, the deacon will gain deep respect. That's brought out in verse 13. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing. He has a growing respect among those whom he serves. He has a high standing that he obtains for himself. In other words, there's a part of him that says, you know, I'm right in the middle of God's will, and it is fulfilling to be in the middle of God's will. And the Scripture says he will have great confidence. He will have great confidence. He tells us the faithful deacon will obtain for himself great confidence in the faith, a personal assurance that he is truly honoring the Lord. You know, we have some people here who could be deacons, and they've always told me no. And maybe that's the best answer. Certainly, I wouldn't want anyone to serve against their will. But sometimes we just flippantly say no when it should be yes. Now, Jesus, the head of the church, said, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Do not think for one skinny minute from this message that you can serve and work your way into the kingdom, because you cannot. I'm not going to heaven because I'm a pastor. I'm going to heaven because I've been bought and trusted in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And unless you trust him... You'll spend an eternity without him. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for those men that serve as deacons whom you have set apart. Thank you that when it's tiring some Sundays and when they don't feel like it, that they don't respond by their feelings, but by the call that you've put on their life. And I'm so grateful for those that you've raised up, and we trust you to raise up more qualified men to model for all of us what we are to be, servants of the living God. Help today, my Father, someone here, someone in Graniteville, someone in Bluffton, someone in Grays, as they hear the invitation this morning to call upon Jesus in faith. Help them to say, knowing that they cannot save themselves, Lord Jesus, save me. Bring to Bluffton today someone who maybe needs to come to meet the pastor. Again tonight, I pray, Father, that there would be someone that you would bring tonight whose heart is stirred over the things that really, truly matter in this life. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.